Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. I'm gonna light up a cigarette. Let me tell you about Murphy Brown, guys. Now, Frank, I just want to share two things with you, honey boy. They bought a kite. Man, I miss New York right now. Lech Lech Valenza. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode 17, Frankly Speaking. Hello and welcome. Welcome back. Hello. I feel like we're like the DJs in a soft rock station. Hi, welcome back, guys. I know. I feel like I'm like auditioning for the Calm app. I'm like, hello, let me speak you to sleep. But anyway, all that to say hello. Welcome to my gentle voice. Yes. Welcome to another episode directed by Barnett Kelman. That guy. And it's written by very good friends of the podcast, Stephen Peterman and Gary Donzig. And it aired on the day that I became a woman in the Jewish faith. Oh, congrats. It was my 13th birthday. <laughs> Lady Lauren began. Which was February 5th, 1990. So this is an episode that I don't remember that much, same as last week, because um, you're busy. Well, it was my birthday, although odds are I didn't have a party because my parents spent so much money on my bat mitzvah. <laughs> like you ain't having a having two parties. No, no. So this would have been uh, the Monday after my weekend party and all my my relatives were in town. So I was probably busy with some yeah. cousin from Arizona. To watch yeah, you were not Brown. available to watch your favorite show. Yes, I did not. But it is still enjoyable nonetheless. But it's a little newer to me than yeah. normal. Which is fun because I have to say this is I, I'll I'll point this out a little bit later as we're going through. But this is an episode where I feel like this is I mean, we've seen flashes of our beloved neurotic Frank before in the show. Mm -hmm. But this feels like the neurotic Frank that I know so well. This feels like the like the moment that it just, the nail got hit on the head as far as like Frank's neurotic rambles. Yeah, like you can just sort of imagine when they, they were pitching this episode when all the writers were like, okay, let's pitch jobs that this girlfriend can have. And someone <laughs> said, psychologist. And everyone went, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, I also feel like, again, I'll point this out when we're there, but he has this one particular monologue that I really align with modern neurotic female characters in oh, the style and the point. way that it's given. It feels very Amy Sherman Palladino. Like it feels very Gilmore Girl Maisel-esque in this. And it, and it feels like a neurotic female that is now very common. That's a good point. And if you think about it, the sort of, you know, stereotypical female male sitcom personality are sort of switched with them. Mm -hmm. Well, the vulnerability. Yeah, that that's not something we normally. And that's why we love the show is because Murphy is playing what is very, a very traditionally male role in this friendship dynamic as Frank is spiraling out. All that said, we should probably just get into the episode and talk about yes. what he's spiraling about. Mm -hmm. So we open to Murphy's office with, I have to assume, even with the, the TikTok generation, is a very familiar sound of a James Brown ow, which I'm not even going to try and replicate. That's pretty good, though. Thank you. I could move away from the mic and really do it as I was practicing earlier, but I don't want to be mean to James Brown. I love that you were work. practicing. That's really yeah, great. I was. I was like, could I bring this? No, I can't. <laughs> I accept my limitations. <laughs> so we we are enter ushered in with the familiar opening of I Feel Good by James Brown, also known as I Got You, parenthetical, I Feel Good. Which I did not know until this episode. Did not the things we learn. This song is iconic. What's interesting is that it's technically his second big charting song, but it was kind of a return to the top of the charts for him. So I Got You, I Feel Good 
was his second big hit, a very similar instrumental arrangement to his first hit, which was Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, mm. another one that so as soon as you hear that, you start hearing it. Um, it features, the big thing about this, similar to Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, and James Brown's eventual uh, iconic funk style is that it leans on the one, which is the first beat of the measure. And it's a very specific style of the way that the beat drops in. Yeah. And it also has his giant James Brown brass-heavy orchestra. It was originally recorded for his album Out of Sight, which was his ninth studio album, by the way. Man, that guy wow. was prolific. And then released in an alternate take as a single in 1965. And it's arguably his best known recording. Yeah, I would say so. You all know it. The second you hear, ow, I feel good, you know. So as this song is playing, we open on Frank. And it's a nice slow zoom in on Frank just sitting. And you know it's Murphy's office. We don't see the normal angle of it. What we see is him in the chair that is back by the wall of magazine articles. (laughs) A magazine uh, covers, I should say. I wrote a list of what I thought Frank was feeling in this moment. He is despondent. He is lost. He is bored. He is con- frustrated. He is confused. He is clearly running through thoughts in all different quadrants of his line of sight. That's one of my favorite things about people with good thought acting is you see them actually look in the areas of their brain, which is where you know you have one area for memory, you have one area for new thought that you're that you're coming up with in that moment, and you can see him darting through it. And some people just dart their eyes around, but you can see him actually landing on the thoughts and having them, which is just excellent, specific acting. The Emmy is in the background behind him, mocking him. I couldn't tell all of the covers. I know one was Harper's Bazaar, but I was having a little trouble reading the rest that are on like the bottom row that we can see. But what I wrote is Joe Regobuto has this great ability to just furrow his brow in the most adorable way. <laughs> like you just feel for him in this. It's just like the center of his forehead is, is furrowed and he's clearly lost and frustrated. And I remember in this moment, I was like, I don't know if he's upset with Murphy, if there's something going on, but I know whatever it is, it's blown out of proportion. Like you just know that with Frank. Yeah. Frank is overly emotional. He wears, he literally wears his heart on his sleeve. Bless him. Thank him for normalizing that for the men of the world. We have a lovely ding. And we're in the bullpen as the elevator opens behind two workers in the bullpen. Murphy arrives and in what is a rare outfit for her where she has her full brown trench completely closed. Like you actually cannot see what's underneath, which I'm not used to. I'm used to seeing like hints of the outfit underneath. We'll find out later is a long sleeved uh, leopard print dress, Mm, which actually looked very modern. Like it looks like one that I would buy right now. Well, leopard print is very in right now. Mm -hmm. Well, also like the cut of it. The cut looks like a bit of a looser style that looks a little more like, I guess you could say, I feel like I see these things at like Zara a lot now, but I feel like it's also because we're at the point where they're recycling old shapes and we did have some baggy shapes in the 80s. Yeah, that's true. I mean, when I see this outfit, I like this outfit, but it doesn't feel like quintessential Murphy. What we, so doesn't. I always, this is the outfit that, and I think we've seen this before in season one or something like it, but this and like the purple dress she wears at the beginning of season two, mm-hmm. I always think this is them still figuring out her look. Yep, it looks like, Yeah, Murphy's just having an off day with her, like, casual outfit. I will say later when she's in, like, a turtleneck and, like, a chunky belt and everything at home, that feels very Murphy. Yeah. So, Murphy arrives in her brown trench coat and makes her way to secretary number 28, which means, last episode, 27. Must have been. She has a blonde, tucked-in French braid. She's in a blazer and a skirt and glasses. She looks potentially efficient. Like, she looks, she's dressed well for the job. Okay. Murphy sees her, slows as she sees the new person, does a lovely eye roll and breath as she makes her way toward. And in this monotone that sounds like a kid who has to make an apology to someone, 
Hi, I'm Murphy Brown. You must yeah. be my new secretary. She's so tired of saying it. And the blonde stands up and seems to be very professional, stands up, reaches her hand down, says, Susan Mason, I need a raise. Susan, don't take the job. Susan. And Murphy goes, what? I can't live on this salary. Why don't we talk about this after you've been here a while? Maybe five minutes. And what I love is Susan then looks at her watch and goes, fine. <laughs> and I have to say, Susan, I was on your side at first because we've all been in that place where like you just have to take a job, but the things that they want to pay people for, mm-hmm. that they is do true. not pay enough. But Susan, you did not go around this the right way. That is actually the last we see of Susan. So I don't think Susan got her raise. Yeah, I don't think she did either. Also, spoiler, we know there are 99 more secretaries. <laughs> so Murphy enters the office. Frank is still in there. Frank looks awful, she tells him. <laughs> Frank just launches into, it's a childbirth thing, isn't it? We put you through a couple hours of labor. You put us through a lifetime of hell. To which Murphy, another great date last night, eh, Frank? And this is when she takes off her coat, reveals the leopard print dress. I mean, isn't the whole thing that men are trying to get back into the womb? Isn't that it? I mean, heterosexual men, I should say. Also, I love Frank and I love this joke, honestly, because it's hilarious. (laughs) But I have to say, a couple hours of labor is the dream for most. Good point. (laughs) Most would love just a couple hours. That's an but, excellent point, Jesse. You know, Frank, it's okay. He's doing his best. He's struggling. Yeah. And his mother had what? I, what I forget. Is it like 10 children? Yes. Eight children? <laughs> so Murphy tells him that uh, she keeps telling him he picks the wrong women. They're either obsessed with their careers or living with someone named Spike. Then when it doesn't work out, he comes to her in agony, expecting her to explain the meaning of life. And she grabs her breakfast. She says, I need a jelly donut for that, Frank. A big one. Don't we all, Murphy? But he swears it's a different this time. This one is different. Last night's date was number five, oh, which actually, I know, shocks Murphy. She goes, it breaks the old record by what, four? I've never felt so in tune with Frank at that point. I know. I was like, oh, it's like, oh, I'm like Frank. Oh, the last Frank. time I've been on, on a fifth date. It's a huge deal. And he said, but he says, this is different. This is, this woman is everything he's been looking for. She's beautiful. She's smart. She's a psychologist. Now we can, not only does he have this woman that he's falling for, but he can also finally sleep with his closet door open. Oh, yay, Frank. And at that moment, we see our dartboard for the first time in a while. Yes. What does it say? It says exact change only. What do we think that means? I think that that is about how, at the time, people actually paid in cash for things. Yeah. And it really sucked when you wanted to pay for something like maybe parking or a ham sandwich. And you could only pay an exact change, which you may not have. I can see that being annoying in, in 1989. I remember those signs very clearly. Yeah, I, oh, Murphy says, well, this sounds pretty serious, Frank. You wouldn't by any chance be, and before she can say anything, Frank stands up and starts pacing and says, no, immediately interrupts her, begging her not to say the word. This is terrifying enough. Her name is Alexandra Endicott Payton. Which pretty much just means shiksa. He says, I grew up with girls named Maria Teresa Pietro Pinto. Her family sews quilts and makes jams. My family screams and hit each other. I should take that back. I should say wasp. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For Frank, for Frank's point of view. Yeah, My he, point of view, Shiksa. His point of view, yeah, Wasp. Very Waspy. For him, Italian. So he's talking and he says, you know, what kind of life can he offer her? And he says, I live in a condo I bought when gold-flecked mirrors were in. Oh, Frank. Now, Frank, I just want to share two things with you, honey boy. Number one, you own a condo. Even then, that's very impressive. Now, granted, I'm also looking through my lens of right now where I'm like, my generation will never own a house. But the idea of like, dude, you own a condo. You are, you're a personality. Come on, buddy. You got this. But I also want to share for those who might not remember the glory of a gold-flecked mirror. That is a very 1970s fad. It's basically when you see the old mirrors that are made to look like they've been marbled with gold. 
It's like your mirror was was a marble slab, except it was gold cutting through your face. They're honestly coming back. I see them in like the, you know, the fancy like overpriced boutique hotels again. Oh, really? To like give that, give that look, you know? I'm thinking about a couple in New York specifically that I would have to work with because now it's antique. Oh, gotcha. You know, in, in 1990, it's just old and dated, but now we've hit this place where now 1970s is vintage. So it's coming back. So Frank doesn't have this insight that someday he will have a a condo strewn with vintage artifacts. He says that, you know, he's on the road most of the time, that they never see each other. And what what about when the kids come in? He says, her family is incredibly fertile. There are three sets of twins in the past two generations. The orthodontia alone would kill me. And what about private schools? Oh God, I wish we'd never met. Which this is not quite the one that I was referencing earlier, but it's really close to being a very like modern female neurotic rant. (laughs) I also feel like this episode is, you know how when uh, the revival came out, we were both kind of disappointed that Frank didn't have a family and kids. Yeah. mm -hmm. I mean, there's another reason I'll bring up later, which I think is the big reason, but this makes you go, oh, yeah. Yeah. I see why now. I mean, I will say I have vivid memories of when I was still dating of being afraid that I would meet someone who had twins in the family. (laughs) You know, like there's a very specific. I, I, I like, do think that is kind of a legitimate fear. That's a legitimate fear. Three sets of twins in the past two generations. Oh, that's scary. Adorable, but so pricey. This is what I wrote. I was like, this is the neurotic Frank we know and love. Hmm. And my other favorite thing is that as this has been happening, we've been, had a couple cuts to Murphy, who's just sitting back, letting him run on chewing, chewing her breakfast while she's just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like she, this is what I love about their friendship that we we saw established back in you know summer of '77 and all that kind of stuff. But like. She knows when he's, the train is running and you just don't interrupt it. You just let him get there. Yeah. She knows he needs to talk and that's what she's here for. And so she finally sits forward and she goes, Frank, can I say something? Oh, please. I don't think therapy is doing you a lot of good. (laughs) And and he is, this doesn't really help him at that moment. He says he needs her help. He wants her to meet Alexandra. Tell him if he's making a mistake. And Murphy's like, oh, no, you want me to tell you if you should marry someone? And that that her saying the word marry apparently causes physical pain in Frank's ear as he runs away screaming, ow, ow, ow. Uh, He's a little afraid of the M word. Mm -hmm. Do we think Frank is more afraid of marriage or love? Oh, God. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Because both words have been very scary. God. I don't know. That's a really good question. I hadn't thought of that because my first thought was he just knows his parents and how miserable mm-hmm. they seem to him. I think maybe he might be afraid of falling in love. Here's what I think as a fellow neurotic. I think he is more afraid of Mary than love. I think he's terrified of love because that means potential pain and loss. But I think he's more afraid of marriage because if you are in love, I think he thinks that marriage will kill love. Oh, God, that's so true. And we find out later that he was engaged and he broke it Uh off. Yep. That's so much heavier than I really was seeing. (laughs) Right, sweet Frank. Here we are in quarantine. It's getting really deep. Seriously. (laughs) little jokes. I'm going to light up a cigarette. (sighs) Let me tell you about Murphy Brown, guys. Let me tell you. Oh, God. So Murphy says, you know what I'm like. If I've got an opinion, I have to say it. He says, that's what he's counting on. And she says, when I told you you look fat in turtlenecks, you wouldn't speak to me for three days. Which, fun fact, he shows up in a turtleneck at the I end know, of the I just thought of that. Mm-hmm. Was that intentional? I think so. She probably likes him in turtlenecks. Or he was trying to look fat. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I love that I that's went there. I was so... like, he's trying to look as bad as possible. God, Frank, that's so manipulative. That's Murphy's job. <laughs> it might have been that she likes them and mm. now he's back in turtlenecks. That might actually make more sense. So... <laughs> 
he says, well, it's just great that he's on the brink of a life-changing decision and his best friend wants to stay home on the sidelines. And she says, uh, yes, she could do this. If she thinks Alexandra is wrong, he will hate her. He has to make his own decisions. And she says, marry her, have eight kids. I'll meet her at your 40th anniversary. That way, if I don't like her, we'll all be dead soon anyway. Fair point. And he begs her. He just says, just one lunch. You'll love her. And then this is my favorite Frank monologue. Not that I love her, although I might, but I can't really be sure because I've never been in love before. At least I don't think I have. Actually, there was this one time I thought I was in love, but maybe I wasn't. Oh God, see why I need you? <laughs> Which is the most. Oh, it's the best. It's it's so good. It's just a, it's a modern neurotic. I feel like Zoe Deschanel's done that several times. Like who is Frank? I'd be like, let me show you this monologue. So she says, fine, Phil's one o'clock. Oh, thank you. And he grabs her hand and kisses it like three times. And we cut to... Phil's. Murphy's confiding in Jim that Frank is her best friend, you know, and he's she might be about to meet the woman he's going to marry. And, and she feels wrong and uncomfortable about it. And Jim gives this amazing speech that I didn't even really write down because I thought that, Jesse, that you would have done that. It was just such also a really long s- speech. It's a very long speech. I wrote down my two favorite lines from it. I, but I wonder if they're one of mine, because I wrote I wrote down the last line, which I thought just sort of like summed it up. But the one I love beforehand is when you realize he's about to launch into more than just a sentence, is he says a couple things and then he goes, oh, sure, they're complex, but then life's complex and I wouldn't have it other way, any other way. And then he goes on this long ramble and I was like, oh my, oh, Jim is pontificating. Seriously, he's very much in the anchor zone right now. Mm-hmm. And then he ends on, but you'll look back on this and say, I may have been uncomfortable, but damn it, I was alive. I, that's what I wrote down. But damn it, I was alive. I was alive. And all she wants to know is uh, if, she, if it's wrong for her to feel co- uncomfortable about meeting the man her best friend might marry. The woman her best friend might marry. And also that the camera sort of moves with Jim, which you don't see a lot in sitcoms. And I was like, this is, I wrote camera work, damn. Like, that, yeah, that really it really works. It really took us to a different place. It felt like it took us into the aura that is Jim as an anchor. Yeah, which we haven't gotten a lot in sort of his real life, quote unquote, lately, off off FYI. So Corky and Miles rush in. They're excited to know if Murphy has met her yet. Murphy, of course, chastised them for being late. Now, I I think we can already tell, even though we do find out that not everyone was invited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Murphy is so nervous that she's making everybody come. Corky says that they're late because Miles was having a hair emergency and he proceeds to show Jim his dry scalp, which all co-workers do, and Corky chastises him for using the samples that come in the mail. Man, that just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. So they all sit down, and sort of Phil comes over with menus, which, you know, sort of shakes everyone up because, you know, like, they don't need menus. They're there all the time. But he's very adamant that they look at the menus because he's created celebrity sandwiches, which, which idea he got from the stage deli in New York. Jim is an American classic, is what it's called. It's a a bacon, lettuce, and tomato on toast. Corky decides that she's going to order her sandwich, which is a peanut butter marshmallow fluff on white bread. That's a fluffernutter. It is a fluffernutter, but it it does describe her perfectly. It really, it is her. Yeah. Jim sort of, you know, tries to not be like, oh, I guess I'll order mine. Oh, you know, I'm not flattered or anything. And Murphy is offended that her sandwich is tongue on rye with spicy mustard. I mean... Can't knock your your accurate branding. Mm-hmm. She asks <laughs> if she can sue. Phil says his lawyers told him no. And then Miles is offended that there isn't one named after him, to which Phil reminds him that producers aren't celebrities. Mm-hmm. And then asks him if he would like a nice Fontana Frank. 
Now, I have two things I want to talk about here. One really quickly. I don't know if anyone is aware, but Smashburger, and I don't know if they do this every year, but they, they did a special thing at least a couple of years ago where if you had the name Burger and any derivation in your name on Hamburger Day, mm-hmm. you got a free burger. And my entire family was ecstatic. <laughs> so jealous of that. And also I started thinking like, what is the history of naming sandwiches after celebrities, right? Mm-hmm. Was it the stage jelly? And I was like really curious. And I, I went down a huge rabbit hole. I will not bore everybody with, with the giant rabbit hole I went down, but it was really interesting because it really sort of goes back to the history of Ashkenazi cuisine in the United States. Cool. Because they, it all comes from Jewish delicatessens, which were created specifically for Jews who came over. Although here's something interesting. The popularity of them really sort of became around like 1880s when a lot of Eastern European Jews, hence who usually are Ashkenazi and their Mm -hmm. Ashkenazi delicacies, were coming to America because of the pogroms. They were escaping from the pogroms and also eventually Jews were not allowed to uh, be educated. That's, I think, a big reason why some of my family came over. It's really fascinating. But the stage jelly debuted in 1937 and it was at the time sort of in a, a Broadway area So a lot of people probably know the stage jelly from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Mm -hmm. which is not the actual stage jelly. The stage jelly, unfortunately, did close. There are not a lot of these sort of, you know, original places left. There's Barney Greengrass, which Midge does refer to herself as a Barney Greengrass type girl because that was going to be up on the Upper West Side. And the Mm -hmm. Second Avenue Deli is still available, but it's not on Second Avenue anymore. (laughs) Yeah. And then Cats in the Lower East Side. Which most people probably know. Yes, because it's the famous I'll have what she is having seen from When Harry Met Sally. Now, these places eventually became, you know, a place where celebrities went. There were, you know, autographed pictures on the walls. Here's one of my my favorite quotes about the stage jelly and the Carnegie Deli, which were known, of course, for their oversized portions and over-the-top attitude. Tom Merwin, professor of history at Dickinson College and author of, get this, Pastrami on Rye, the overstuffed history of the Jewish deli. Said, for example, Carnegie is a symbol for what I call the ethos of excess. Oh. Hmm? Isn't that great? Because of the huge portions. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. And it's played an important part of American Jewish culture. So the celebrity culture surrounding these places, because they were in the theater district and they were known as, like in Maisel, where all these, you know, like, even though... Midge and Susie hang out at the gaslight. They go to mm-hmm. the stage deli to network specifically. Yeah. Because that's where yep. everybody is hanging out. The sandwiches were very expensive, lower turnout, and honestly, huge high New York rents are why the stage deli and the Carnegie Deli eventually did close. <sighs> Although there was a rumor that the owner of the Carnegie Deli, I had to mention this, the rumor was that during her nasty divorce, the owner, Marion Harper, who had taken over the Carnegie Deli from her father, went through a nasty divorce in which her husband allegedly stole the deli's prized pastrami and cheesecake recipes and shared them with his mistress. Oh, what? That is such a specifically low blow. Yes, and I felt I had to mention it. So the number of Jewish delis in the United States has plummeted from uh, about 1,550 kosher delis in New York alone by as of 1931 to just a couple of hundred kosher and non-kosher. So what I actually found out is that none of these places started this celebrity sandwich, even though eventually they were known for it. It was Rubens, Uh which, by the way, is not just a sandwich. I did not know this either. Rubens was an actual restaurant and a chain 
And as of at least 1922, their menu stated Rubens' famous sandwiches, listing 42 sandwiches, nine of them named after celebrities in stage and screen. Some people say, oh, well, they were just publicity stunts. There's a lot of stories around the family that he was trying to impress an actress, so he was trying to get with a girl. Hmm. Also, these sandwiches could be priced at a higher rate. They were going for 75 cents in 1922, or even a whole dollar, which could be an entire meal, whereas a sandwich was usually about 35 cents. Hmm. By 1948, the slogan of Rubens was from a sandwich to the national institution. And there's still no straight story on who actually created the Rubin. Interesting. It sounds like Rubin had a big ego and he took a lot of credit for things that may have not been his, but we don't really know. But he started Rubens in 1908. Huh. And they think around like World War One is when he first at least the institution of the restaurant first named its sandwich after a silent film star. Wow. Yeah. I have to say this entire conversation is making me really want a Kaiser roll. Yes. Uh, this research made me so hungry. Moving to the Midwest from New York after 10 years, I did not realize how much I rely upon a Kaiser roll breakfast sandwich. Oh, they don't and have And how much there? I miss that. No, it's just, not, I mean, not at least in my neighborhood. And it's very different from New York where... You don't, there aren't things nearby like oh, you get like, in the like city. bodegas and stuff. Kaiser rolls are just not like, I want, you know, an egg and whatever on a roll. It's just not a common thing you hear or get because it's just not bodega culture. And I just, I didn't realize I miss it so much. I just want to figure out how to like make a Kaiser roll for myself or how I can get them imported. I haven't had a good bagel in like two years. Man, I miss New York right now. Okay, back to the show. Yes. So Miles orders turkey on wheat bread, to which my brain went, Miles, what self-respecting Jew will order wheat bread when there is rye in the house? Miles. Dare him. What self-respecting human? Thank you. Let's choose flavor, people. Thank you. Let's choose flavor. Well, you know, uh, one time I um, went to see a school in Pennsylvania. I won't name what that school was. And on the way back, we stopped at a diner. It was my college tours. And I ordered rye bread. And they brought something that looked like wheat bread. And I said, Mom, I think I need to, they made a mistake. And she said, no, this is what they call rye bread in Pennsylvania. And I went, I cannot go to school here. No, 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 no. No, 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 need the deli food. Although I can't have bread anymore right now. But anyway, so another sandwich on the menu, which is turkey on white bread, which Phil announces is a Dan Quayle. Ding! So finally, Frank and his lovely girlfriend arrive. The whole gang is there, which he's super surprised about. <laughs> and he completely forgets his girlfriend's name and he can't introduce her. Now, I don't know. Do you recognize this girl? Because I sure recognize this actress as being in everything in the 90s. Yep. I was like, oh, I literally wrote, I'm like, she's like the Judy Greer of the 90s. Yes, she is. She's just in everything. You're like, I like her. But for me, as much as everything that she's been in, and she's still working, which I didn't realize. She's mm-hmm. been in American Horror Story. I got to go look at some of her modern stuff. She was in Scandal, apparently. Yep. But she was in this TV series called The Powers That Be. Bless it. Which had David Hyde Pierce in it. Mm-hmm. It had Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Like a lot of people before they were really big. Holland Taylor is in it. It is on YouTube. Please find it. It is the funniest sitcom It only lasted like, I think, a season and they canceled it. It was Norman Lear. I still consider it one of my like top five favorites that comes of all time. It's really fantastic. Anyway. You know why I know her best, right? Remind me. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Wait, she's in that? She was in Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves. Oh, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, I saw her face. And I was like, why do I know this? And I looked for a long time. And I finally was like, oh my gosh. Because you know that thing where you're like, you see the other things that they were in. You're like, oh, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I yeah. Know. yeah your face was from that. But there's something, whatever it was that like held the attention. And for some reason, her in that particular movie, I don't know why. I didn't even see that movie that often. I watched, you know, the first one a lot as a child. I could see her being sort of the exasperated yet supporting wife. I'm assuming that's what happens in that movie. No? Yeah, I mean, they basically, they they shrink, if I remember correctly, I think she's like the sister-in-law. Oh, okay. I was going to say. they shrink like the two sets of parents. I thought they recast. That makes more sense. No, I think she's, I believe she's the sister-in-law. I'm sure some someone at me that I'm wrong about this. But I also realized that she was in Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23. Oh, that's right. That's the last thing I saw her in. Yeah. But then she's done so much since then. She's, yeah, and I'm so Ugh. glad she's still working. She's just like, to me, she's one of those faces of the 90s. She's also in Big Little Lies, which is, I realized, the most recent thing. And I didn't realize it was the same person. She's got a career that I uh, just want to applaud. Like, that's longevity. And same. that is not trying to be... That's a career of actual work and not just trying to, like, get one big hit. Like... Yeah. That's the, that's the kind of career we all wish for. Yeah. Go Eve. Team Eve. Except in this episode. <laughs> Perfect for this part. She's no problem that her boyfriend forgot her name to his friends because she calls it a BRP, a brief reactive psychosis. It's no big deal. You're psychotic, right? She didn't say that. I'm saying that. Yeah, they call them burps. <laughs> he was anxious and wanted them to like him, and it manifested itself in a little mental lapse. It's fine. She's kind of perfect for him. Truly. And it's, it's, it's a little sad to me that although she's not my favorite of his one episode girlfriends, mm-hmm. There's one that I uh, wish he ended up with, but alas, and we'll get to that in season five. But anyway, they are adorable. She's very sweet, very nice and mature and seems very, you know, really good for Frank, I think. Murphy jokes that it's a relief that his mental lapse is impermanent. She is so honored that everyone took time out of their busy schedule. Very last minute, by the way, including Mm -hmm. her. I'm surprised she didn't have patience because she understands how they're like family to Frank. But she has to check in with her office first. And as she looks in her, I'm assuming probably for a beeper, right? Out of her purse. Murphy looks in her purse. Very subtly. It's so subtle, Murphy. Frank says it's fine because he would like to introduce her to Phil on her way to the phone. And as soon as she leaves, Murphy just goes, what a witch, which obviously is CBS talk for (laughs) Uh uh, another word. And everyone is shocked including us, the audience, because she's lovely. And Murphy says it's so obvious how wrong she is for Frank. And of course, we hear Phil laughing, you know, at the happy couple. He just loves her in the background. And now Murphy realizes that she has to tell Frank the truth, which she really does not want to have to do because she promised she'd tell the truth. And it's going to be a really awkward situation. So Frank comes back. And of course, that's the first thing he wants to know is, you know, what Murphy thinks. And everybody leaves. <laughs> Everyone scatters. Think would be the first hint of Frank, but he does not get that. Yeah. And all Murphy can say is, she's very nice. She's real nice. To which Frank knows that she hates her. And of course, Murphy's like, I just, I just met her. How can I hate her? Which she repeats so often, he knows that she really, really hates her. And then Murphy tries to distract Frank from the actual real conversation by what, Jesse? Oh, well, she claims that apparently they're they're making a new Star Trek. What do you think about that? To which I, my nerd brain went, um, because Star Trek originally aired starting September 28th, 1987. <laughs> Star Trek, the next generation. Yeah, I, and what I, yeah. I mean, it makes sense that Murphy would be that behind. That's so off. Like it had been out for a while. 
Yeah. And she doesn't mean the movie because the last mm-hmm. one at this point would have been 88, right? Well, but also the movies had been going for a while. Like the movies were why many people think that the original series went longer than three seasons because mm-hmm. it went three seasons, kind of stalled, and then they came back with all of these movies of which I have a box set right up there. But the the next gen- Star Trek The Next Generation overlaps with the movies of the original series, which is why they have Generations, which is the crossover and kind of the passing of the baton mm-hmm. as the original yeah. cast b- kind of bows out. But, and with it one particular death that is very controversial. But then I was looking at this and I was like, I'm looking at the choice because obviously our writers are brilliant and they know that this has been out for a while. And at this point, if we're in what is essentially the third season of, of Star Trek The Next Generation, it's now like hitting big fame status at this point. Like the first couple seasons, where especially the first season was a little like getting into the groove and is this going to work? And by the third season, it's a huge deal. And so I realized this is just indicative of the fact that Murphy is just scrambling for anything. Like, obviously, the fact that there's a new Star Trek is not news at this point. So for me, it's very indicative of, like, for the the people watching at that time, they know that this is just a mad scramble for something. For us, we're like, oh, yeah, probably it is. But in that actual context, it shows how desperate she is. That's a good point. Yeah, people would know. Yeah. Plus, she's wrong. Like, she thinks it's a bad idea and it's a big hit. Murphy should not be running the entertainment uh, part of CBS. She's like, what is something we could talk about? Uh, Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Something that I watch. Yep. She's scrambling. So Frank really wants her to be honest. And then, you know, Murphy gets really serious. She's like, okay, okay, okay. And she just she just goes off about how she is so wrong for Frank, which of course makes Frank argue about it, which is like he just wanted to know the truth. Mm-hmm. And it's all, it kind of goes down to her purse for Murphy. Everything was in its place. Someone like that is inflexible. The keys were in the key pouch, two pens, a box of tissues, a couple of wipes. She hasn't seen a purse that clean since she interviewed Squeaky From. <laughs> oh, Squeaky From. Yes. It's just a funny name to say, but not a funny person. No, I mean, it's funny if you're a theater person and you love the musical Assassins, then Squeaky's delightful. But actual Squeaky, not so delightful. <laughs> Do you want to tell everybody who Squeaky From was if they aren't familiar with Stephen Sondheim's Assassin? <laughs> well... As someone who has learned her monologue and song and duet several times from us. So Lynette Alice Fromm, a.k.a. Squeaky Fromm, short version is an American criminal, but she was a member of the Manson family and is best known for trying attempting to assassinate President Gerald Ford. She also published a book about her life in 2018, which was really mm. hard for me to not give money to because I'm so fascinated. But yes, she is one of the few uh, notable female attempted assassinations. Assassinator. Assassins. There we go. But she is, yeah, she's a Manson gal. That's all I'll say about her. Yeah. And uh, I I can't remember if we've talked about this on the show before, but Candace does have sort of a connection. Mm Mm-hmm. Her boyfriend at the time was a new Manson, and Manson was trying to get his attention to get a record deal. And although my understanding is, and I can be wrong, that it is an old wives' tale or a urban legend that he was going to the house Ooh. where the murders were, or I should say the second murders were, of Sharon Tate and her friends was the house that Candace and her boyfriend lived in. Mm-hmm. But from everything that I have read or seen, and again, you know, who knows, the truth is that he knew they didn't live there anymore, that he wasn't looking for Candace and her boyfriend. But I know there was an urban legend that like they they sent them there thinking that, you know, that's who they were going to be. But, you know, it's still, it was still very scary at the yeah. time. Yeah. Family was scary. 
Yeah. Candace said that they stole a, a telescope off their new home's deck. Ooh. Yeah. Back to fun the stuff. Show. Frank, poor puppy Frank, as I wrote, you know, really thinks that he can deal with the truth. Murphy brings up the fact that he hates to be called sweetheart and she calls him sweetheart. Yep. Well, I don't like you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but then Allie, Alexander Peyton Manning, whatever her name is, she has so many new names, shows up and she's just so sorry, but she has to go. One of her clients who's fearful of cheese had to pick today to walk into a hickory farm, oh. which is such a sitcom yep. joke. <laughs> I was like, Mwah. that's just, oh, that's like. Are there hickory farms anymore? Oh. It's like a Cracker Barrel. Would we say like cracker, Crackle Barrel today, maybe? Even though it's not all cheese. I don't know. I mean, I just know hickory farms and I just assume. I. But they used to have stores, yeah, right? I, were they like a Cracker Barrel? Like, I, which I had forgotten about until so I was like, yeah. Like, it's one of those things where like, it, I think similar to like Squeaky Fromm where I'm like, have I just, because it was there when I was younger and I just accepted it as a constant, I just assume hickory farms are still around? I mean, they might be. I mean, I have not traveled recently. Maybe the brand is, but not the brick and mortar. The brand, definitely, yeah. Hmm. On this, at this point, we are in 2020. I kind of assume that anything is potentially on the chopping block at this point. Yes, this will drop in 2021. So feel free to tweet us. Yep, your let Hickory us know. Farms experiences that we do not have. Let us know if, if Hickory Farms survived 2020 like we yes. did. <laughs> See you on the other side. See you on the other anyway, side. Anyway, I keep wanting to call her Alex because one of my best friend's name is Alex. I know a lot of people named Alex. It's the, it's the biggest name in my phone. Alex Payton is very disappointed. You know, she was really looking forward to getting to know Murphy and uh, Murphy and Frank. A very, very fake promise. Oh, it'll happen again. Don't worry. You know, but she's very sweet. And these people are going to wreck her. Yes. We find ourselves at uh, Murphy's office at FYI. And she's on the phone with, was it Meg? Is who she's speaking to? Oh, I didn't write that down. I'm not sure. Well, she's telling her her friend, I believe Meg, on the phone that uh, she, even though that movie sounds great, she can't go because the Celtics are in town and she and Frank never miss him. And then she responds like, oh, I can't cancel. You see, Frank is in a very destructive relationship right now and I'm the only healthy thing in his life. (laughs) This is when you're like, oh, Murphy. Oh, Murphy, no. So she gets off the phone and at that moment, Frank does the lovely like lean in, knock on the open door. And, you know, you, you get the impression they haven't been able to chat recently. And he says, oh, well, you know, he and Allie, this is when he first says Allie. I'm like, oh, oh my. Uh, have been pretty busy. We bought a kite. (laughs) To which Murphy says something that I feel so represented in this as both a sarcastic and a theater person, which is, wow, life is a cabaret. (laughs) They bought a kite. uh, We bought a kite. So she says she's this Lech Valenza interview down to time, and she might need his eye for editing and wants to know what he's doing around seven. Now, before we move on, I just want to share. So Lech Valenza is a famous uh, Polish statesman. He also, Nobel Peace Prize laureate, but he was the first democratically elected president of Poland. And he was president from 1990 to 1995. He was the leader of the party called the Solidarity, which led a successful pro-democratic effort in 1989, which ended the communist rule in Poland and ushered in the end of the Cold War. And it's a funny name that sitcom writers like to use. His name will come up again. Lech Walesa. Walesa. I am very thankful for my training in IPA when I looked up his name because I was like, what is she saying? Yeah. I, and so I looked it up and I was like, thank you, IPA. I only know because later on, I think in season three, Jerry says it very slowly. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, what, Le- who's Lech Valenza? So yes. And so she asked his help, is, is he available tonight at seven? And he says, unfortunately, Allie's taking him to an exhibit of medieval tapestries. And she goes, the fun never stops. She's she's so such a specific boomer. <laughs> yeah. And so he says, actually, speaking of, he actually stopped by to talk to her about the Celtics game. 
You see, Allie's never been to a basketball game and he'd like to take her. And Murphy's, you can yeah. just see the like, doom. she says, wait a minute, you want to take Frida Freud to the Celtics game with my <laughs> ticket? Frida Freud. Mm, yeah. Well, Allie told him that she wants to learn. So and Murphy says in response, so let her learn when the Clippers are in town. Yeah, this is this is bad form on Frank's part. This is very, Particularly very bad Particularly if he wants them to like each other. Yeah, she, he wants them to like each other. Also, this is their thing that she just turned down another friend. To, like, this is clearly a yeah. hallowed thing. But when he's them. in love, I think that Frank kind of loses all reason. Again, Frank is doing a thing that is now a stereotypical female yeah. trope in entertainment. Well, that's why I love it so much. This idea of like the girl gets a boyfriend and immediately changes. Exactly. Like, he, and, and I think Frank is so happy that someone likes him. Yeah, and wants to learn about basketball from. Again, Allie sounds pretty great. I think she would have been really good for Frank. Yeah, it's just too early. I mean, it's like it's like Max Medina and Gilmore Girls. Mm. We met him too early. Yeah. Oh, Scott Cohen. Anyway, she was too early in the show. He's begging Murphy because he promised Allie and he needs that ticket. And Murphy is not amused that he clearly assumed she would just give hers up and claims that actually he can't have her ticket. She's already asked somebody. And Murphy says, what if those tickets is mine? She says, you don't need them, Frank. I hear there's still some seats left for that Gregorian chant concert. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm doing editing. And they are saying this at oh, sidebar. I kind of want to go to a Gregorian chant concert. I'm just going to say. But that's a different mm. thing as a singer. But there's, she's saying this as they're leaving Murphy's office. He yells after her, keep the tickets, go to the game. I hope you sit in beer. And they exit her office and we cut to the townhouse where Murphy is in the aforementioned turtleneck slacks and chunky belt with her hair back. I love this look. Classic I Murphy. I live in this look. Mm-hmm. It is very classic Murphy. She is sitting on her couch watching the Lech Valenza interview. Eldon is now behind her uh, on the floor with paint cans and just the, the paint tarps out. And what we've discovered is she's clearly watched it. She's watching and rewinding, watching and rewinding. And you can tell that she's done this so many times because Eldon can now quote the interview in the native tongue. I of love that they did that. It's so I would have done good. the same thing. I I love that that's what Eldon does. Yeah, it's so good. I now I was a little confused because later he says something that is clearly you're driving me crazy. But when I looked up crazy or insane in Polish, it was a different word. So I'm wondering if they're speaking in a Russian because um, I assumed he was speaking in Polish. Oh, I didn't even think of that because I I mean I am Polish, but like mm-hmm. not ethnically Polish. I I only know one word in Polish that I learned from a Mel Brooks movie. That sounds right. Yeah. So regardless, he is quoting back in Lux's native tongue, which I assume is Polish. And she does another rewind. And right at that moment, clearly something goes wrong for Eldon. And he says, oh, great. That's just great. Are you happy now? For the past two hours, I've been trying to achieve the perfect taupe. And now I got a big can of beige. How many times are you <laughs> going to play that thing? It's driving me. And I wrote out beige dominka. But that sounds Polish. It but does. What do but I know? I, although the, the Jaminka part, it may have been a different translation than just crazy or insane. It might have been a different word that is the not literal yeah. translation or like of a slang or something. Exactly. It's probably a translation that's just more appropriate. And I just don't know it in my very quick Googling of what is that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I mean, Polish and Russian to us sound very similar. So mm-hmm. I just can say Jankulia. I assume you can say what? Jankulia. Which is, uh, thank you. Well, it's Jankulia. I assume that he says a version of you're driving me crazy with the Polish substitute at the end. I assumed that as well, yeah. Yeah. So 
she asks if he minds. She's trying to cut 15 seconds out of this interview and she doesn't know how she's going to do it. And she says she really needs another opinion. Clearly, she really needs Frank's opinion. And Helen just looks at her and goes, well, what am I? Just another pretty face. And Murphy's like, okay, okay, great. Frank's not the only one who can do this. So she explains she's thinking of cutting one part, but she's worried that it might the cut might be too choppy. And she plays a cut, and it's a cut where she's asking Valenza if he thinks the uh, events are moving too fast in Eastern Europe, is there a danger of a backlash? And we hear him being translated into saying he thinks that events have built a momentum like a train. They're going to be hard to stop. For my money, I think that the cut works. Doesn't sound choppy. And we turn to find out what Eldon thinks. And Eldon's been watching very intensely. So you're like, oh, we're going to have this like brilliant moment of like brilliant Eldon. And she asks him what he thinks. And he says, whoever painted the wall behind that man should be shot. <laughs> Thanks. He's been very helpful. He says that's why he's here. And he does this really sweet thing where he just hands her a piece of gum and <laughs> grabs one of his own and then leaves for the kitchen. She looks a little bemused. As after Eldon leaves, she stands up. Clearly has had a moment where she realizes she needs Frank more than she needs this. So she walks around, picks up her phone, calls Frank. Now, I thought a different thing was going to happen in this moment. Oh, what did you think was going to happen? I thought she was going to leave a rambling message about all of her misgivings about Allie, that then the next day he was going to come and be in like, thank you so much. We were sitting there and she heard all of the things that you said about her. Oh. And now she's very upset. But instead, Murphy says, hi, Frank, it's Murph. And she says she knows it's late and just wants to say one thing. She feels terrible about what's been happening between them and wonders if she can talk to him for a minute. And then you hear Frank. Frank, is that Bolero playing in the background? And why are you breathing like that? Why did you pick up oh, the God. phone, Frank? Why did you pick up the phone? That's what answering machines are for. Anyway, here's why I called. <laughs> and proceeds, oh God, oh, the visions that I have. This moment I always remember. Yep. Because I always, always, even back then was like, why did you pick up the phone during Why did sex? you pick up the phone? The why are you breathing so hard is, oh, anyway. It's so, it's so well-written. And so she says, if that invitation is still available with him and Alexandra, she'd love to take him up on it. Sounds like there's an affirmation. So she says they can get back to what they're doing, but he should hurry up because the Maltese, the Maltese Falcon is on and clearly the call is cut off. And so we cut to... By the way, I should mention that Maltese Falcon is Frank's favorite movie. Oh, yes. So we're back at Phil's. Uh, Murphy comes in. Um, she has a huge headache. She's rubbing her temples. Allie feels really bad. Perhaps, you know, their big night out shouldn't have been Kabuki Theater. Oh, that is specific. It's very specific. We find out later that Murphy was seated next to the drummer. Ooh. No, no, it's not the drummer. I'm sorry. She was seated next to the, oh, I can't remember now. What's the thing that you ding? The cymbal? <laughs> the cymbals, The right? gong? The gong! Thank you. I have to leave that in because that was funny. Uh, <laughs> I sound like an idiot, though. Percussion. She was in the percussion section. I will say at first, I was like, why do you have a headache from Kabuki theater? But yes, if you are, because I love Kabuki, but if you're next to the the percussion, that is a different experience. I think my brain just thought drums and so that it came out of my mouth, even though that's not what she says at all. So Phil upfront informs them that the celebrity sandwiches are done. They're gone. Everyone was going down the menu saying, I hate him. I hate her. He couldn't give an Orrin Hatch away. Our good old friend Orrin. <laughs> Which we've talked about Orrin Hatch before. And if you remember, it's a hilarious joke. But really just insert any, you know, representative or politician that you don't like. Yep. So now he's stuck with 20 pounds of head cheese. Oh. That sounds like an awful sandwich. Yes. No matter who it's named after. Yep. Also, second time in a row, we can see what is on the suspenders. I believe it is pool balls, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Some billiard balls. Allie sweetly is going to get Murphy a damp towel on her head. So she, she goes off into the bathroom. Frank wearing a turtleneck. 
looking actually pretty nice, does not look fat. But then again, it is a black turtleneck. So, but I don't know how Frank could look fat, but whatever. Yeah, exactly. Frank wants to tell Murphy something and she, but she wants to apologize for the way that she's acted and that, you know, she wants to spend more time and really get to know her. And and really is a really beautiful, heartfelt apology, which of course leads to Frank being quite shocked. Murphy confesses that he, you know, he's her best pal. And the more that she saw him going on dates with Allie, the less, you know, she saw of him. And so it scared her they might not be there for each other anymore. But he's, you know, her best friend and, and she she wants him to be happy. But of course, Frank confesses that he's breaking up with her. And then Murphy was right. And uh, they, of course, have a big fight because, you know, she's doing all this work. Why couldn't he do this before they went to the show? Seriously. But apparently it's the anniversary of her grandmother's death. So he really doesn't want to, you know, like break up with her on that day. But the issue is pretty much is that even though it would seem perfect for Frank to date a psychologist, she is always being a psychologist. If he throws his socks on the floor, he hates his mother. If his food isn't touching, he's obsessive compulsive. If he waxes his car, it's a phallic symbol. And now he can't touch his car. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is. I mean, she's right about all of these things. Yeah. She does need to have a a work-life She does, yes. Or boundary. The inflexible comment from Murphy does not seem that off. Yeah. So mm-hmm. now Murphy feels stuck in the middle and she wants to get out of here, you know, just as she's coming back. And Frank says that if she calls him sweetheart one more time, <laughs> he loved it before. Frank. Um, so Frank's going to go. He's going to get an aspirin. He really just wants to get the hell out of there, which Murphy's not a fan of leaving the two ladies together. Mm-hmm. And Allie feels that as a trained psychologist that she can tell that something is going on, that Murphy feels threatened mm-hmm. by her and that it's all right to feel rejected. You know, she has to face facts that she's going to be a big part of Frank's life. Mm. And she wants that famous honesty that Murphy has. And Murphy just won't do it. But she needles her and needles her. And she calls her that she's she's cheating her. Allie deserves the truth. And she's cheating her. And she's a cheater. And she screams over and over again that she's a cheater. And then Murphy finally just screams that Frank is breaking up with her, which, of course, she doesn't believe. Then Frank arrives and asks how Murphy's headache is. And she's startled. But her headache is gone. Magic. Allie says the unbelievable thing that she said that that Frank was breaking up with her, which is is ridiculous, which, of course, Frank calls Murphy sick, which kind of gives it away. Can I just say my my favorite thing about Murphy's headache? She says, my headache is gone, but I feel you have one about to begin, (laughs) which is so good. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. That's right. Oh, it's great. She's like, seems so happy that that he's going to get it. She's like, oh, my gosh, it's yours now. I also love when he calls her sick and she goes, oh, go wax your car, (laughs) which is just another penis joke or fuck you joke. And then Murphy begins to coach Allie to be more like her. Because she try, she's trying to, to drop in with her feelings like a good professional and she can't really do it. She's blocked. Mm-hmm. And so Murphy encourages her to be angry and mm-hmm. not emotionally open. <laughs> and she just screams at Frank. And you, Murphy looks so proud. They both really need what the other one yeah, has. You, it's a beautiful moment. You're like, I feel like you two could really do good things for like each other. Like if you here. didn't even know, you'd go, I think these ladies are about to be good friends. Cut to... <laughs> in Murphy's office. And we find Frank back in his starting position. Same pose, same furrowed brow. And Murphy enters in what is a, I think is a very Frank outfit. She's got a cap. She's got a bomber jacket. When she takes the jacket off, I mean, we've seen this outfit before, but the whole outfit is pretty much like the same outfit that Minnie Mayum was wearing last, last episode. Yep, yep. I was like, yeah. this works, this works. 
So Frank says he knows she's angry and she has every reason. He just wants her to get it off her chest. Like he's clearly been there for a while just being like, let's just get this over with. And she says, no, it's fine. You know, she put it on herself. She had a choice. She made the choice. And then she made the choice again. And just like he had a choice to run like a dog. And so we find out what happened after we saw them, which is that Frank says, I had to. She threatened to rip my face off. I'm a television personality. I need my face. And he said, besides, he thought the sooner he got out of there, the sooner she could be in the healing process. He doesn't want her to suffer, and which felt very like, oh, you know, I did it for her, which was like coward. And Murphy says, oh, no, she's not suffering. She met somebody else. And Frank is like, what, somebody else? She goes, oh, yeah, at about uh, 2 a.m., Mr. Wright made an appearance at Oil Can Harry's. To which Frank says, you took her to a strip joint? Well, guess what? It turns out it was Allie's idea. And Murphy says, man, when she cuts loose, she's amazing. She did a number with Zorro that brought the house down. And Frank says he can't believe it. She says, oh, yeah, she stuck a $20 bill down his pants and then went back for change. (laughs) Exact change, perhaps. Oh, yes. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. And she said they talked, they laughed, they exchanged revenge techniques. And that's when Frank goes, what? And he asks, well, what did you tell her? Because as we know, Murphy's ability is to revenge and throw some pranks. There's renowned. And she says, oh, she told her a lot. Uh, she Apparently, Allie was especially interested in what she did to that guy in Buffalo. Remember Ooh. him? And you see Frank's terror and he immediately, like, he just starts repeating, oh my God, and running mm-hmm. for the elevator. And she goes to her office door and she yells after him, I better stop at the hardware store and get some deadbolts. The big kind. Oh my God. And as Frank's entering the elevator, Murphy remembers one thing and runs after him and says, oh, about the Celtics game, you want me to pick you up or do you want to drive? And he goes, oh, no, no, I'll pick you up. You drove last time. And our friendship is back. So I have two questions for you here. One, what do you think is coming to Frank's house? I have an idea. Oh, please tell me. I think it's a wild animal. I did too. I was like, there's something, there's going to be like a crate of something that just gets like open. Like a leopard. I was thinking more like like large rodents. But okay. That, I could see that, but would large rodents be able to get past a regular deadlock or a door? She told him to go by those huge deadlocks. So I was like, a panther? See, my thing is that I don't think Murphy nor Allie would do something that could actually kill him. I think it's more of rabid pests. Yes, but everything is a cartoon in this show when it comes to her pranks, right? But that's why I was thinking about like beavers or things that can like get through doors and that's why you need metal. Have you seen the video of the beaver who's in the house trying to make its own little like... Oh, you mean the, the TikTok account that I follow that's the beaver that like lives in this lake house because his dam got Wait, washed away? Wait, it's an away? entire TikTok? I did not know this. Yes. Yeah, he like, it was raining out and so he just like stands outside the like back door until the woman lets him in and then he just kind of hangs out in the bathroom for a while and he he comes back all the time. Oh my God. I love him. So I think maybe that's why I'm thinking beavers. I imagine that it is a large number of destructive, but not because it's comedy, but not actually dangerous things. That's true. Maybe the, the deadlock is so that she doesn't get in the house, but still he was like, get the big kinds. He's like, oh my God. Yeah, I assumed that the deadbolt was because she was going to break into his apartment soon and leave the things that were the problem. And they need a deadbolt because then he can't, it's harder for her to get into yeah, his apartment. But I guess the fact that he, his oh my God got worse when she was like the big kind. Either way, we think it's it's alive. I think it's alive, yes. Okay, and then my second question. is The end of mm-hmm. this reminded me of an aspect of Toby and CJ's relationship on the West Wing. Now, for those of you who haven't watched The West Wing, you don't need to be able to follow it. I'm just going to bring up something that was brought up in that show and relate it to this. Do you remember at the end, Toby said to CJ that the reason that she didn't 
seem to need a relate a male relationship, a non-friendship relationship, a partner during her time in the White House because of all the testosterone that 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 part of her life was filled through all of the attention from the men that she worked with who were her friends and all of the attention from the, the, the people in the press room who flirted with her. And so she had all the male attention that she needed, whether she realized it or not. Mm-hmm. And it allowed her to focus on what she wanted, which was her career. Exactly. I know this was a little controversial at the time for some people who felt that that this wasn't CJ. I, as an older woman watching that, I could feel that. And that, that felt mm-hmm. uh, real to me. Do you think that that's what happened with Murphy and Frank? They already had that bonding relationship. And obviously they they were getting sex outside from like being on a couple dates and doing mm-hmm. things that they always came back to each other because they always had that in their lives. They didn't even realize that they were missing it. I think I agree. I think that there, it reminds me of some people I know where while one or both will have yeah romantic more flings or more casual Mm -hmm. connections outside they essentially serve the role of life partner for each other that then allows them to not have to worry about commitment to someone else it scratches that itch so they can go have the things that the other one won't provide it's one of those things it's the i feel like it's the actual platonic potential argument for not men or women can't men and women can't be friends because but i think it's the if you the difficulty of being friends with whatever gender it is you happen to also be attracted to is that you can allow yourself to remain a commitment phobe if you find someone who fulfills that life partner role for you. And then you can just go have the the fun stuff on the side that they mm-hmm. clearly have. But you don't need to look for your soulmate because they are your soulmate in this own way. Yeah. Like it's it's a, yeah. It's safe. Yeah, it's safe. And you're not going to... That's a great thing about having those friends that serve that role for you is that when you're in a friendship and you don't have those stakes of are you my one, you know that you're you're not going to lose mm-hmm. that. Like that that part of your life isn't going anywhere and I think that's why this like modern conversation of how do we where does love live in our lives is really great and I think that I think relationships like because these obviously these shows were created and airing during a much more heteronormative Yes time for entertainment. So now we see it even more as, you know, we open our minds to gender politics uh, and gender roles. But this idea of like having these platonic friendships like Frank and Murphy, like CJ and Toby is really important for that conversation of you could have a life partner that is not romantic if that's not what you're looking for at that time. And, you know, something that I think the CJ character is indicative of is that also there, Murphy's I think is a little more complicated. But with like the West Wing, you know, one of the things they talk about is that you only get this job for this many years. And for that time, it is the most important thing because it's going to be done. So for someone like CJ, it's great to have that attention so that you're scratching that itch and you don't feel like you're losing something because then you get to focus on what matters, which is this very short, very focused time span. For someone like Murphy, her career is not going anywhere. So it really feels more like... uh, both a very beautiful friendship, but also they enable each other to stay in these unhealthy exactly. patterns. Yeah. Of and it was something phobia. that I really hadn't seen. And, or, you know, obviously, because we're, we're seeing this through a more critical eye, you know, through the mm-hmm. podcast. And so now going back and then also connecting it to how we know in the revival that they end up, mm-hmm. which, you know, it seems to me that they raised a child together, whether they lived under the yep. same roof or not. 
The closest to a father that Avery had was Frank, which you see when he's in the hospital, right? But yeah, I, I think that their relationship, because it's so close, is unfortunately destructive of them having other relationships. And I think a lot of it is out of fear. You know, you get comfortable with somebody. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you see what happens when they suddenly don't have each other as easily. Like Murphy being like, yeah, what are you doing tonight? Obviously, you're not doing anything because you're always available for me. And what happens if, you know, it that type of dynamic is perfectly valid if you are people who don't feel like living by societal's heteronormative, monogamy normative mm-hmm. expectations of like, well, eventually you're going to need to settle down. If you don't live by that, then this relationship is fine. But if even one of the people in this relationship has aspirations of having a single life partner, that will change the dynamic and then someone else is left wanting. And we see that in on both of them at different times when one of them meets somebody. It's like they're their own tapeworm. Yep. They can't mm-hmm. live without each other, but they are sucking the life out of each other. Yep. But they're also exactly what each other needs most of the time. Yeah. So it makes me less upset about that. Not that I was upset, but like we were a little disappointed, right? And I don't feel disappointed anymore, but I do think that it's a little sad because, you know, this this sort of dual relationship is on one hand extremely satisfying, but also putting a block between them having meaningful relationships with other people other than themselves. It's a little more complicated than I thought. Please continue to, or if you haven't already, follow us on the social medias. It's a great way to get updates on the show, to tell us what you liked or what you'd like to see more of, or what you want to see less of. We are all over. We are on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Murphy Brown Pod. We also have a website, murphybrownpod.com, where you can get uh, show notes, little extra things on things that we've spoken about for all the episodes. Also, it helps the show if you'd like to donate to our Patreon. You don't have to, but there are definitely ways on our website as well that you can donate for one time or per month and get some special extras. And we'll see you next week for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. (laughs) 